This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton, and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. Ethnomusicologist Dr Catherine Grant has travelled the world in her efforts to save dying musical traditions and instruments and is now working on a project with the British Natural History Museum. She was so struck by the haunting sounds of the Cambodian chapay that she learnt how to play it herself. By doing so, she came to a much deeper understanding of this traditional music that is so intertwined with the social justice and human rights fabric of Cambodia. In this episode of The Gender Card, Catherine explains how she borrowed tools from linguistics to gauge the health of musical traditions and how inseparable music and cultural sustainability are. playing that for us. Tell us about this amazing instrument. I don't think I've ever seen one before, let alone heard one. And I think there's only two, is it three strings? Two strings. Two strings, three pegs though, which deceives everybody. Uh, One of the pegs holds a string that's just to hold the frets in place. Yeah, It's a stunning looking instrument, isn't it? Absolutely beautiful, quite unique. So (laughs) its its name is Chapei, Chapei Dongveng, a long neck Chapei, and it's from 
Cambodia, a traditional musical instrument in Cambodia. And what I just played was uh, was a folk song that's played on this or any number of other um, traditional Cambodian uh, musical instruments. But this particular instrument, the chapei, is quite endangered in Cambodia. So probably only 30 or 40 people uh, in the country might know how to, to play it. And maybe only three or four people remaining who have really good knowledge of the repertoire and the skills associated with the improvising and so on. So I think it was 2016 that the instrument was inscribed on UNESCO's list of intangible cultural heritage in need of urgent safeguarding, which is a bit of a dubious honour, I'm afraid, of course, but it has brought some international attention to the to the instrument. So I'm very lucky, yeah, to, uh, to have learned it. And uh, that actually highlights really how wonderful it is that we even heard you play it. Mm. It's obviously not something that we hear in Australia all that often. Or... No. Oh, it has. Um, so I know that one of the old masters, Master Kong Nai, um, over in Cambodia, he did come with one of his younger protégés, I think, to WOMAD uh, and maybe for a festival in Darwin as well a few years ago. But I think this instrument might be the only Japay in Australia. I'd be delighted to find another one, a friend for it somewhere. <laughs> so if anybody knows of another Japay in Australia, please let me we know. We can have a gig. <laughs> so this really comes to the heart of your research too, doesn't it, Catherine? Can you tell us, how did you start researching these amazingly rare uh, instruments and musical forms. Sure, sure. So I'm very lucky. Um, I learned music, Western classical music, as a child. Um, my first instrument was classical piano and I learned some violin as well as a, as a child. Um, but I've long had an interest in other languages and other cultures. Um, and in my younger days, I was a teacher and teacher trainer for a while of English as a second language so I did quite a bit of traveling and spent some years overseas and through those experiences that gave me of course a, a, a love of other other cultures and languages but through my time as a teacher of English I began to have quite an interest in sociolinguistics and particularly this phenomenon of endangered languages where languages are just not being passed on to younger generations for all sorts of reasons and when I try to explain that to people here when they say, well, what is an endangered language? I often give the, the case of many of our Australian Indigenous languages, um, which are, many of which are sleeping, um, are waiting to be, uh, to be um, awakened again by their, uh, by their communities. And of course, there are many, many reasons uh, for that. But um, there are endangered languages all around the world, and it's especially uh, important to communities to keep that cultural knowledge alive. And it struck me then, given my background in music, that there are also endangered musical genres, and that these were also important um, to people for similar reasons, so for individual and collective identity, um, they give a, a sense of strength. Um, songs in particular also contain knowledge uh, or can contain knowledge about the world, environmental knowledge for example, or knowledge of, of ancestors or historical events that can be can be important. I imagine the two would be quite intrinsically linked, the language yes. and the music, is that right? Yes, that's mm. right. In some circumstances, for example, where a language, which is the carrier of so 
much cultural knowledge is not being passed on to children, uh, then also the, the songs and the, and the uh, other cultural practices, including ritual practices or seasonal practices, can, can, also, um, can also disappear. So, uh, and I mean, I also feel that just the world is a better place if it's got more, more stuff in it, more, uh, not material stuff, but more, um, a richer diversity of, of cultures and peoples and cultural practices and musical genres and languages. I think that makes the world remarkable. <laughs> so I had the opportunity about 10 years ago to become involved in a project that's about this phenomenon, music endangerment, here at the Queensland Conservatorium. The, we have a research centre here, uh, part of Griffith University, and this was an Australian Research Council-funded um, project for a few years called Sustainable um, Futures for Music Cultures. So I was involved in this project, um, and that also eventually led to my completing a, a PhD uh, in the topic. So my um, my PhD focus was this relationship between endangered languages and endangered music genres and how um, how efforts that have been made particularly by linguists in how to keep endangered languages strong might be useful also to music researchers like me who are looking for ways to support communities to keep their endangered music strong. And of course you won a major award for that Catherine, congratulations. Oh, thank you. That's no, but it certainly enough. sounds like a, it was very innovative though to think of music in that way and to actually come up with a, a way to really gauge how a musical genre is is going how healthy it is essentially mm -hmm. innovative uh, and thank you for the comment <laughs> um, it was something new for music but I don't take credit for it because linguists had been exploring these methods of in of um, gauging the strength of endangered languages for decades really since the 1990s when a, a linguist uh, called Ken Hale first drew attention to the fact that there were there were linguists all around the world studying a dying phenomenon in South ways and he felt that that linguists should also be able to do something about that and to support communities to keep their languages strong so I took a lot of inspiration from linguists like Hale uh, and many others in designing my own framework to be able to gauge the strength of a music genre and applying those principles to music yes, yes for the first time yes, mm. yes. so where has that brought you to now is that what took you to Cambodia yes it is so during my period I became um, aware of the work of a non-government organisation called Cambodian Living Arts. They've been working since the early 2000s or even late 1990s to revitalise traditional music and other cultural expressions in the Cambodian context and many of those had been sadly lost during the, the years of civil war in the 70s and the Khmer Rouge genocide and, um, and the ensuing challenges of the, of the 80s as well uh, and, and into the 90s and so when I finished my PhD this is going back to 2012 now I I was curious to find out more about the work of Cambodian living arts and I began to work with them I went over there to Cambodia and began to work with them to explore some of the topics of interest to them and their efforts so we were looking at questions like why did young people want to learn these traditions or 
why did they not want to learn them? <laughs> it's equally important. Why did older people feel it was important to, uh, to pass on their skills and knowledge? And importantly, what were some barriers for both young and old people in learning and teaching these traditional tra- traditional genres? So in general, sort of what, what conditions help a flourishing of the arts in, in Cambodia or prevent it? What did you find? Yeah, well, many things. Some of them, I guess, related to the topic of my current research, which is about relationships with socioeconomic circumstances and human rights, (laughs) political circumstance, access to education and so on. So these, um, we found that actually some of the barriers to people engaging with traditional performing arts in Cambodia were not the artistic. They were more to do with broader circumstances of daily life uh, in, in Cambodia. Because they're so intertwined, the music and the expression, I suppose, of, of the social justice issues and, and what's around them in, in the culture? That's right. Mm. And I think I think it was probably in 2015 that I really started to want to explore this further. So 2015 mm. I had the great fortune of being supported by an Endeavour Australia uh, fellowship to have six months in Cambodia uh, where again I was working with Cambodian Living Arts looking at how the socioeconomic circumstances of youth uh, affected their engagement or ability to engage with traditional music and it was during that time that I came to realise that we music researchers or ethnomusicologists, as um, that's the discipline that my work falls most closely into, although there are problems with the word. <laughs> but um, not just uh, saying it, the actual yes, word. No, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I came to realise that when we uh, music researchers have explored this issue of music endangerment or of music sustainability, that we haven't talked all that much about issues of social justice and and human rights so we talk we tend to talk a lot about the impact of migration on musical genres or urbanization or changing ways of life without acknowledging really some agency behind some of the global power imbalances and inequities that actually give rise to the loss or the threats to these musical traditions well I imagine is poverty an issue and being actually having access to these beautiful instruments it is it is, and and this this relationship. So not only between poverty, but any of these kinds of uh, issues of social justice and human mm. rights. This is, it's really something that I'm very keen to explore further. In Cambodia, as regards poverty, so poverty has actually reduced uh, there mm-hmm. uh, and considerably in the past couple of decades. It's good news, but many people are only just uh, above the what's deemed to be the, the poverty line. And socioeconomic challenges can make it really difficult for younger people to engage with activities that are seen as not very profitable, like music or not supporting a family. So this is probably especially true in in rural areas. So the the younger people will come home from school and they will often be helping out with jobs around the home, so maybe tending cattle or working in the rice paddies, or if you're living in in an, an urban area in Phnom Penh, you might need to hold down employment in order to support your family back in the provinces. 
so here's maybe one example of how economic justice, if we're talking examples of mm -hmm. relationship between social justice and cultural sustainability, if all people had economic justice, had access to a stable income, uh, including in rural areas, or if poverty were reduced throughout the country, or I have to say if there were fairer distribution of wealth because political corruption is rife, sadly, in government corruption is rife in Cambodia. All of those things would not only advance economic justice, but it would also, I would argue, contribute to a flourishing of cultural practices. What about for, for women, for young women in Cambodia? Is there cultural barriers for them picking up this tradition as well? Yes, yes. This and, and, and all musical traditions or traditional music genres or practices or instruments in Cambodia. Sadly, there is. So, uh, I mean, part of that is related to those comments mm -hmm. just then around economic justice. So girls, if they go to school uh, at all, they might come home from school and then be expected to carry out household or child mining duties, for example. But also traditionally, music has seen, or particularly the traditional music expressions, have seen to be the endeavour of boys and men rather than girls and women. But there's nothing culturally taboo uh, in Cambodia about women and girls learning uh, a musical instrument such as um, such as Japay. But in the group of probably 15 young people who I learned this instrument with when I was over there in, in 2015 and subsequently uh, I think I met two young women who were learning the instrument. So this is something that Cambodian Living Arts and the Community of Living Japay, which is the name of the group um, who I learned this instrument with, this is something that they're trying hard to, hard to change, but certainly economic justice, gender justice, gender equality, they're both, uh, both closely linked. I mean, isn't it fascinating that uh, it's not even, like you say, it's not a cultural taboo. It, that, mm. Even that point itself is quite fascinating that it, it's far more complex mm. than that, the, what stops people or prevents people from, from picking up, learning how to play the chapé and continuing that important musical tradition. Yes, that's true. That's, it's also, it also means, I feel, though, that that it wouldn't be too difficult to address this. So if this, if there's no such reason, <laughs> um, then there's actually, in sort of in philosophical terms at least, there's nothing stopping <laughs> women and girls engaging with traditional cultural practices more. So it's rather uh, just, I feel as though it's the norm now um, and maybe self-perpetuating in some ways. Whereas I think if girls see girls playing, um, we'll get somewhere probably fairly quickly. And it's one, it's one thing that I can do, I guess, when, uh, when I express my interest in the instrument. I didn't express my interest in playing it because at that stage, when I first learned about it, I wasn't sure whether this was a cultural taboo. But I certainly demonstrated to, to this wonderful group of young, mostly men, that I had a great interest in the instrument and loved it. And they were very... They invited me to, to learn it and then we began that conversation about cultural taboo but they said no we would actually be thrilled if you could learn it and begin to perform with us because it might show young Cambodian women that uh, that this is actually 
this is an okay thing to do and even even lots of fun. Isn't that incredible? That shows also, I think, Catherine, how research and life can intertwine, I think, in mm. quite unexpected ways, mm. perhaps. <laughs> it does, it does indeed. Yeah. I mean, I'm very aware of my positioning, my privilege and so on as a, as a researcher over there, but I'm, I'm really thrilled to be able to uh, to pick up an instrument through my through my research. It's uh, it was always my first love, music making, and uh, it's a great delight to be able to continue it through my research. And I think for many people, they wouldn't realise this link between music and social justice. They wouldn't think really. How does other than a few protest songs, maybe in the nineteen sixties no. or something? Uh, what is there the the link between uh, between music and that social justice framework? Yes, yeah, and I mean, as you say, the protest songs are the obvious thing that people's minds turn to when we think of that that link and music has been very powerful in that way I guess with my interest in particular on the issue of music sustainability so the future of musical traditions and their relationship with issues of, of social justice I guess um, so those couple of examples the economic justice and gender justice that shows how injustices can lead to a depletion of cultural strength but I think it's also pretty important to make the point that the the opposite's also true that this is not all all bad news um, that moving towards social justice can lead to really flourishing vibrant musical practices so when when people across the, the whole of society are enabled and empowered to participate in the cultural lives of their communities then that leads to a better a better social life and a better society and a better world with any, with any luck well and you actually witnessed a quite a specific example of that, didn't you, as well, with this um, chapé? I did, I did. I mentioned it to you a little earlier. So my teacher in Cambodia of this instrument is a wonderful young man in his uh, 30s by the name of Pixarat, and he really sees this instrument as a force for for social change. Um, so so characteristically, this the genre that's associated with this instrument uh, the player will accompany themselves while they improvise lyrics and often these lyrics actually sometimes they can be about um, they can teach Buddhist practices but uh, at other times they make social commentary and and sometimes quite pointed social commentary and even political commentary which in the context of Cambodia is quite a difficult thing to do in other ways and through art you can say things that you wouldn't say in other ways, that you wouldn't write in a newspaper, for example. Isn't that interesting too? And it almost sounds a bit like rapping in a way, doesn't it show you too that all of these musical genres kind of overlap in, in many ways? It's, it's, <laughs> it, 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 that's true, it's a real skill, it's the it's the rap maybe, the rap of, of Cambodia. Cambodia. <laughs> that's right. So, teacher um, Serrat, as I call him, he, he, he both educates and he entertains um, mm. people through his uh, through his his improvised um, singing and playing of this instrument and he goes to schools and educates children and and the teachers about issues like uh, land degradation and AIDS also the illegal ivory trade was another um, another subject that he's passionate about and on one of my recent visits or maybe a couple of years ago now 
um, I remember asking Sarat what he what he did last weekend. I was making making chit chat with him, and he said that he had travelled out to one of the um, one of the rural provinces to support the farmers there and the, the local villages in their protests against the deforestation of their land, which was causing problems for their, their agricultural practices and their livelihoods. And there had been recently um, protest rallies um, which had agitated the local officials and the military police and so on. And in Cambodia, these things can become quickly life-threatening. Very dangerous, yes. It was dangerous. Mm. Um, and, and weapons had been had been drawn at some of these rallies in this particular village. But Sarat told me that he felt strongly uh, about this and he said, if I take my chapay out there and if I sing and play about it, then it's harder for these officials to get angry. And he held up the instrument to me and he said, this is my weapon. And he actually did take it out there. And he took it out there, yes. He's he's a real social activist, but a, a peace-loving, a music-loving, peace-loving social activist. But there's an example of how a, a cultural practice and, and a very endangered one at that um, can be a real tool to, to advocate for social justice. And, and that beautiful and photo that you have on your desk, I believe, uh, yes. where he's with. The police, and they're basically having that bond that I would have thought would be otherwise probably quite impossible, um, looking like he's giving some, maybe some guitar playing, not guitar, <laughs> some, some chape tips yes. to, the, yes. to the policeman, and that's enabling communication where it wouldn't be able to ha- happen. Exactly, exactly. This is a, a beautiful photograph that, um, that I have up in my office <laughs> at the conservatorium. Um, as you say, so my, my teacher, Lakru Sarat, is holding a, a Chape instrument and showing a policeman. This is in one of the streets in downtown Phnom Penh. There are a couple of other policemen um, looking on with uh, some curiosity and a couple of other bystanders looking on with big smiles. And for me, in a, in a country where power, or at least perceived power in the police and authority and, um, and uh, the military and government and so on, where power is often feared and probably in many cases rightly so, this is just a beautiful reminder to me about the power of music and of culture and of humility mm-hmm. and of humanity through, through art and through music. And shows the importance importance of your research I think as well Catherine and why it's important to sustain this music yes I think that's right I mean, that's it, that's only one side of the coin of course there's so many aspects mm. to this relationship but if sustaining an endangered musical culture can bring us closer in any way to a more socially just and equitable and fair world then uh, then I think it's something worth pursuing it's not just music for music's sake no. Much as that would also be a worthwhile endeavour, but it is yes. much more than that. Yes, yeah, that's true. Mm. And and uh, it's an interesting point that you make, that humans do make music for the sheer joy of it and the fascination of it, and that's a wonderful thing. So I don't by, by any means want to distract just from the sheer beauty of the of the music and and the arts that, that are endangered. They're, they're worthy in their own right. If cultures wish to perpetuate them, then I think they're, they're worthy of our attention and support.
support, but given that they can also do a lot for these communities and for our for our world, I think that's an added uh, an added dimension that. Uh, we, we should give some attention to it too. <laughs> what uh, does that bring us to now? What's the next step for your mm, research, Catherine? Yes, well, I would love to certainly continue my relationship with Cambodia. It's a place I love, I love dearly. I've just come back, actually, from a trip just in January uh, documenting another rare musical instrument. Oh, as well. <laughs> called the yeah. Jews harp, or the Ankoit is the, is the Cambodian type of Jews harp. It's a little instrument um, that you play with your mouth. And later this year, my, my research team and I, we plan to launch a video documentary about this instrument and the amazing old people who still have the knowledge of how to make it. And we'll hold a, a photo exhibition and a series of local events and workshops in Cambodia that we really hope will inspire the younger people as well to get involved especially girls and and women actually involved in this instrument so that's a a project that we're very lucky to have received funding support from the British Museum they have a new program over there called the Endangered Material Knowledge Program rather than intangible this time uh, tangible (laughs) since the focus on the instrument rather than the rather than the music but that's something that I'm very excited about. Oh that's great that the British Museum would become involved as well so yes. people are really noticing your yes. work. Mm. Yes, yeah, very mm. lucky and also very fortunate to be partnering with the Smithsonian Institution in the in the States. Wonderful. Um, so we have a project also in partnership with La Trobe, you know, here in Australia uh, and we're hoping, we're aiming to work with two um, specific communities, one in Rapa Nui, Easter Island, and the other in Rajasthan in India, about how music sustainability can concerns in these two communities can advance social justice and human rights concerns. So that project will get underway in the next month or two and I'm very excited about where that might where that might lead us. So do you look at music from other cultures as well or is it mainly Cambodia at the moment? You, Cam- you mentioned a couple there but sure, yeah. Yes. So Cambodia it's that's been the focus of my attention mm. and um, and of course uh, having built up relationships um, in Cambodia in particular that makes research um, first of all a great pleasure but it also I think makes for better research to have a depth of um, a depth of relationship with the community over there and a level of trust built up over some years but I'm very lucky to have had opportunities to work in some other communities as well including an ongoing relationship with the community of Lewiton in uh, Vanuatu on there on climate justice in fact, climate justice and relationships with cultural sustainability, which is another uh, another aspect, of course, to, to that relationship. And uh, I've also had some more brief opportunities to work with communities in Vietnam and also uh, Indigenous Australia. So I'm very, very privileged. It's a <laughs> very lucky to have this job, to be um, to have the opportunity to get to know other cultures and cultural practices and other languages and other ways of life, but also to be doing that through my my first passion, which is uh, which is music. And have you found that there are principles that overlap between all of those varying cultures all around the world? 
I think so. In terms of my research focus, which is mm. the, um, the the strength of of the musical practices, I think increasingly I would have to say just the 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 whole ecosystem is important. So the strength of a cultural practice isn't only dependent on the cultural sector, for example. Mm. It's um, dependent on how um, how the community functions and how how individuals are going as individuals as well. It really so, reflects the health of the whole society. It does. It does mm. yeah, which is a good a good case for each of us probably doing what we can. <laughs> yes, uh, we can learn from this too. We shouldn't just go to work and close the laptop and come home and put the laptop on in front of the <laughs> TV again sure. or something. Sure. We should have our own musical practices. Yeah. As well. <laughs> yes. Now, you were telling me about this is where it intersects again with your own life and bringing this even to to a local perspective you've actually used the chukpay here in Brisbane and had a performance here. Can you tell us about that? I did, yeah. I wouldn't want to call it using the poor thing. (laughs) (laughs) Played, I'm sorry. I feel sorry for it. (laughs) But it did help me to get a message, uh, a message across to a group of people. Yeah, so the story was, um, well, a bit of background probably first. In in Kangaroo Point, which is a suburb of of Brisbane, there are, I believe, around 80 people, I'm told, mostly men uh, who are being detained in a in a hotel they were brought here for medical treatment under the the so-called medivac law which was later repealed so they're from the offshore detention centers um, Manus and Nauru and they're being held under tight security some have been there uh, over a year now they're allowed out once a day uh, to visit the gym at the um, the nearest immigration detention centre, Beta, here in Brisbane. But they have significant restrictions on their freedoms. And one of the men's a musician who recently had his guitar taken away from him for, in my view, no justifiable reason. So I went to a rally of musicians for refugees outside this hotel and there might have been 60 perhaps or 70 of us there. And we could see the men in the hotel looking at the, looking at us all, looking on at our rally through the bars of the hotel windows and, and waving to us. And I did take my chape along. I, I didn't really want to play to the microphone, but as people were leaving at the end, I positioned myself on the on the curb across the road from this hotel where these men in the hotel could see me. And I played for them and some other people were milling around and and could hear me, those who had um, participated in the rally. The men in the hotel, of course, couldn't hear me, but we made eye contact and I knew that they were receiving my message, which was uh, one of compassion for their circumstances and the hope that one day they might find themselves welcomed in our, into our Australian society. So I was very grateful to be able to send them that message through the Chape and I felt it was uh, appropriate that the Chape should help me to do that because it is used as a as an instrument for social commentary and the advancement of social justice in Cambodia. I think your teacher would have been very proud. I think so. Did and you I, tell him? Yes, I'm looking for a photograph actually from the rally. I'll source one and I'll send it to him because I know that he would be very pleased. Hmm, the influence of Cambodian how many thousands of years has this tradition been going on? Actually, we don't know mm. a lot about its history, but we 
we think it might have been around at the time of the Angkor Wat uh, period, so a thousand years. Incredible. <laughs> so that tradition coming to Australia and making its influence known here as well. Yes. <laughs> I think on that note, would it be too cheeky in an Australian way to get you to play some of the Chuck Pay again to finish our podcast sure. interview today? Yeah, I'd love to. Thank you so much, Catherine, for telling us about your work and uh, I think this is just a, a perfect way to illustrate the importance of what you do. Thank you. Thanks very much, Nan. <laughs> Catherine for joining us on the Gender Card. That was Gender Equity Research Network member, ethnomusicologist Dr. Catherine Grant from the Queensland Conservatorium. And that's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced for the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on SoundCloud. Speak to you again soon.